A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, May 17th, 2023, the 847th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So before we get started, I just wanted to mention that there were some comments yesterday about the sound on the Mike Benz recording that I shared where he was discussing cyber censorship and what was going on in Turkey. As I mentioned yesterday, he was outside on the side of the freeway. There was going to be no way to make that sound perfect. I'm sorry it didn't sound great. Not a lot I can do about it other than choose 
not to share that clip. I can try to put noise gates on stuff like that. But doing that would mean that we end up losing a lot of the things he was saying too. I know it's not fun listening to things like that, but I thought the information was worth it. And that's why I did it. So apologies if that was frustrating, but I cannot always get other video and audio to sound the way I would prefer it sounds. That's just not the world we live in. Now, there was one thing yesterday that I forgot to mention in the discussion of the release of the Durham report and the reaction from the conservative establishment and the conservative media establishment. And I wanted to draw your attention back to this story from 2018. This is an article from Fox News published on May 10th, 2018. I would do it again. McCain writes about release of Steele dossier to FBI. Senator John McCain apparently has no regrets about his role in the release of the so-called Steele dossier, which is said to contain salacious allegations about then-candidate Donald Trump. In excerpts of his forthcoming book, The Restless Wave, Good Times, Just Causes, Great Fights, and Other Appreciations, the 81-year-old senator who is recuperating at home following recent cancer treatment and surgery, acknowledges that he delivered the information to then-FBI Director James Comey. And I would do it again, McCain writes, according to excerpts published by The Guardian. Anyone who doesn't like it can go to hell, McCain adds, saying he did, quote, what duty demanded I do. The quote-unquote disturbing nature of the allegations against Trump prompted his action, McCain writes. I had no idea which, if any, were true, the senator writes. I could not independently verify any of it. And so I did what any American who cares about our nation's security should have done. In December, Fox News reported that former British spy Christopher Steele instructed Sir Andrew Wood, a former British ambassador to Russia, to approach McCain about the existence of the dossier while Wood and McCain were both attending a security conference in Canada. McCain later received hard copies of the dossier from Fusion GPS and relayed a copy to the FBI, Fox News reported. Also in the excerpts that appear in The Guardian, McCain claims Republicans are on the wrong side of the immigration debate, arguing that it has been driven by zealots who fail to understand immigration's key role in American exceptionalism. The anti-immigration zealots need to be confronted before their noxious views spread further and damage for generations the reputation of the Republican Party, McCain writes, according to The Guardian. McCain also expresses regret for choosing Sarah Palin as his running mate in 2008 instead of his friend, former U.S. Senator Joe Lieberman, Democrat from Connecticut. And it's always worth remembering those last couple points. Didn't want the populist Sarah Palin. Now, I didn't think Sarah Palin was a good vice presidential candidate back then. But McCain regretting it is very likely not for the same reason. His position on immigration is awful. And five years later, we can see the impact of Republicans and traitors like John McCain and what their policies and positions have wrought. And that's an especially odd position for a very powerful career politician from Arizona to have, as Arizona is overwhelmed with illegal immigration and the crime and other various problems that follow. Arizona is a massive 
human trafficking and drug trafficking state. That is just a fact of the world because of the cartel activity and the border activity. And John McCain and his family's political mafia in Arizona oversaw that, as did on the Democrat side of the Uniparty, Janet Napolitano's political mafia. We also know that Arizona has some of the worst run elections in the country, and we'll get to some of that in just a minute. But this is John McCain's legacy. John McCain took the totally fake Steele dossier directly from Fusion GPS, who had been hired by the Clinton campaign, and he gave that dossier to FBI Director James Comey. And then the reporting began to come out that the FBI had this dossier on Donald Trump, suggesting he did this and that in Russia and elsewhere. And that was the impetus for everything that followed. The applications for FISA warrants so that they could spy on Donald Trump's campaign and Donald Trump's associates and eventually the executive office of the president. It was the basis for the Russia collusion hoax that threatened to undermine the 2016 election and then was used to undermine Donald Trump's presidency. It was the fallout of all that that had them pursue Michael Flynn. And all of this facilitated by Hillary Clinton's campaign, known about by Barack Obama, Joe Biden, James Comey, John Brennan, Attorney General Loretta Lynch. John McCain was a key part of this process, one of the heroes of the Republican establishment, the untouchable John McCain. The Republican establishment and conservative incorporated media right now do not want to spend time on the John Durham report, and that's why they'll probably just let it float off into the ether and distract themselves with the next trans guy. Because the truth is, they all went for it too. Now, some of them were ignorant and just hated Donald Trump and really believed the story and went along with it, and others knew about it the entire time, knew that it was fake, and went along with it anyway because, again, they hated Donald Trump, they hate populism, they hate MAGA, and they were heavily incentivized to go along with it because they benefit from the regime. A lot of people out there really don't understand John McCain's history, and they still trust the television as the television has told them over and over and over again that John McCain is a hero. You can't say anything bad about him. He was a prisoner of war, and all of that overrides the facts of his military service and the fact that he was an absolutely terrible senator. So let's talk about some election stuff. Carrie Lake's case in Maricopa County has opened. The trial has begun today. And Kurt Olson, in his opening statements, laid down their case about ballot signature verification. He showed a video of a man approving ballots over and over again, just touching a screen over and over again to approve ballots. I think it was 26,000 of them approved by this man, not in the video. It wasn't that long, but over and over again, 26,000 approved 100%. He mentioned that there were 70,000 ballot signatures that were approved at a rate of less than two seconds. This is what Maricopa's own log data shows. That means that every two seconds, a new ballot signature would be quote unquote verified 
and approved. That was the verification process. It is entirely impossible to determine whether or not a signature is valid in that amount of time. He went on to say Maricopa's log file data shows that 11 of these signature verification workers approved 170,000 signatures at a rate of between zero and 2.99 seconds with a 99.97% approval rate. Kurt Olson said in court, that's not signature review, your honor. He said Maricopa's own log data shows that over 264,000 ballots were reviewed at a rate less than three seconds and 70,000 at a rate of less than two seconds. He noted that level two reviewers were so overwhelmed with the pace of this thing and the quantity that they simply didn't look at the signatures at all. They're bringing up witnesses today from the ballot signature verification process. One of the whistleblowers says, we didn't understand why we were leaving early when there were ballots left in the bin. And we asked the manager, are you sure you want us to go home? Would you like us to, you know, keep trying to call these voters to get these ballots cured? And they said no. She went on to say, we were catching signatures of individuals. They didn't even belong in the history meaning it's, say it's John Smith, and it was a woman's name, or, and this wasn't a married couple, this was completely different names. We ask, how did these even possibly get into the history? They're not even the same. They're not the same name. They weren't a relative. How did this happen? The addresses were different. Everything. She said that the level two review managers were sending rejected ballots back to them for re-review, for matches because they were so overloaded. Reviewers were told to be cautious because whatever they reject or approve, they could be called in to testify. And it's funny because people who are on the Katie Hobbs side are now claiming on Twitter that that is actually proof of how cautious they were being and that they were told to be cautious. Therefore, the process was playing out as intended. But there's no way for them to be cautious because they were being asked to do a job in a way that would be physically impossible to do correctly. Olson explained that there were 11 different points that they were supposed to check, 11 different signature matching standards that they learned in their training. All of that was meant to be done to verify a signature. And instead, they just repeatedly hit a button over and over again, verifying signatures in under three seconds per signature. Again, that's totally not possible. The defense attorney, his opening statement, and I think that I am accurately representing the position, was that Kurt Olson's video of the man pressing the screen over and over and over again and approving all those ballots actually shows that the process was completed and that they are not in court to adjudicate whether or not the process is sufficient, only whether or not the process was completed. He is claiming that what happened constitutes ballot signature verification, regardless of whether or not any legitimate ballot signature verification is possible under those circumstances. He's claiming that the way they did it did not violate Arizona statute on the elections. So therefore, the fact that it was done at all means 
that it was done correctly enough. And because it's been certified, of course, that's all that matters. Everybody agreed that the process was completed and the process just is what it is. If the process was completed, that's enough. Katie Hobbs is governor. Doesn't matter that we're talking about hundreds of thousands of ballots in Maricopa County that no citizen of Arizona should have any faith in whatsoever as far as the validity of that ballot is concerned. These are mail-in ballots. Mail-in ballots are the most vulnerable to fraud of any style of voting. And that's been long known. The only way to verify whether or not those mail-in ballots are legitimate and attached to a voter is through ballot signature verification. That's it. And that process is obviously entirely insufficient and intentionally so. And now they are arguing in court that that process is fine, despite the fact that no rational person would ever believe any of it. So how about that for John McCain's rhino legacy in Arizona? So we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that case over the next few days. The evidence is damning as far as the quality of Arizona elections is concerned. Now, that doesn't mean that the judge is going to find in Kerry Lake's favor. The judge may accept the defense's argument that It's the legislature's responsibility to create the parameters for the election. And this election was valid within those parameters. We've seen judges operate that way for two and a half years now, ignoring all the actual malfeasance in the election and how ridiculous the argument is that because the parameters allow this sort of obvious cheating, the obvious cheating is okay. I imagine regardless, whatever decision the judge reaches in this case, it's going to be appealed, which means that this process is probably going to extend for months to come. Now, that said, obviously, if he finds on Kerry Lake's behalf, that changes the narrative game completely, even throughout that appeals process. But if recent history is any guide, he will find for Maricopa County and Kerry Lake will once again have to appeal. That will obviously and justifiably frustrate a lot of people. But the point here is that the evidence that elections are rigged is becoming undeniable. They might skate along and get another decision to go their way. But this is powerful evidence to the country that something is seriously wrong with the elections. It's intentionally wrong with the elections. It's systematically wrong with the elections. And everybody knows it. Now, speaking of our elections, there were a couple of them last night around the country worth noting. This is from the National Pulse this morning. Trump culture of winning alive and well as DeSantis's Kentucky candidate finishes a humiliating third. So this is the portion of the program where if you get triggered by Ron DeSantis talk, you're not going to like it. And I will state, as I always do, that none of what's happening necessarily reflects directly on Ron DeSantis, but it certainly reflects on the movement being built to draft him as a primary candidate in the Republican primary against Donald Trump. And it also suggests that the narratives they're using 
to push Ron DeSantis's candidacy are obviously false and obviously dishonest. Ron DeSantis's donors and surrogates regularly claim that Donald Trump's winning days are over and that the Republican Party needs new leadership. Their claims were rubbished overnight, however, as the Trump-backed candidate in Kentucky obliterated his DeSantis-backed opponent. Upon his victory, Daniel Cameron declared the Trump culture of winning is alive and well in Kentucky. And it's worth taking a second to remember the clip I played on Monday of Ron DeSantis discussing elections and winning. Well, I look at the last however many election cycles, 2018, we lost the House, we lost the Senate, 2020, Biden becomes president, or no, excuse me, we lost the Senate in 2020, Biden becomes president, and has done a huge amount of damage, very unpopular in 2022, and we were supposed to have this big red wave, and other than like Florida and Iowa, I didn't see a red wave across this country, and so I think the party has... Uh, developed a a culture of losing. I think that there's uh, not uh, accountability. And I think in Florida, we really showed what it takes uh, to not just win, win big, and then deliver big. And ultimately, when you're doing all this, uh, what results are you producing for people? That's really what matters. Uh, You can sit there and talk about cable news, social media, all these other things that, that, that people are fixated on. And for me, it's like, okay, what's that true north? Uh, You obviously got to win, otherwise you don't get a ticket to the dance. But once you do that, how are you going to be able to actually bring about big change to make people's lives better? Next. So again, he ignores the presence of election fraud completely. He accepts the results as they were reported and given. And then he assigns blame for who lost their races. We are told over and over that elections are perfect in Florida, and that simply is not true. Let's return to the National Pulse. Trump-backed Cameron won the GOP nomination for the Kentucky governorship with a double-digit triumph over runners-up Ryan Quarles and DeSantis' preferred candidate, Kelly Craft. In what was described as a proxy war between Trump and DeSantis ahead of the 2024 Republican nomination, the former president was victorious with his preferred candidate receiving almost 100,000 more votes than DeSantis's. Following his victory, Cameron announced, of course, a big thank you to President Donald J. Trump for his support and his endorsement of this campaign. Kraft, endorsed by Ron DeSantis, finished with just 52,128 votes to Cameron's 144,415. Skeptics have claimed the endorsement was less to do with electoral victory and more to do with DeSantis courting Kelly's husband, Joe, a hyper-wealthy Romney donor who is the president and chief executive officer of Alliance Resource Partners, the third largest coal producer in the eastern United States. Kraft was endorsed by a number of Republicans, including Vivek Ramaswamy, Mike Pompeo, and Ted Cruz. She even spent $4.5 million more on campaign ads than Cameron, who will face current Governor Andy Bashir in November. So Trump's candidate finishes first. He's going to be the Republican nominee for governor this fall. Daniel Cameron has been around for a few years. He was included at Trump's RNC convention and gave a speech that night as the attorney general of Kentucky and Ron DeSantis's endorsed candidate finished third. 
That candidate is the wife to a hyper wealthy Romney donor. And she was also endorsed by Vivek Ramaswamy, Mike Pompeo and Ted Cruz. So the establishment candidate got blown out by Trump's candidate. And there was another race last night that builds on this narrative about Ron DeSantis being the candidate of winning and his own viability in 2024. I was discussing this on Twitter this morning, and the historian Larry Schweikert sent me a Substack article that he published this morning. You can find it at larry.substack.com. Yesterday's mayor race in Jacksonville, Florida, along with the primary GOP governor race in Kentucky, were seized upon by supporters and detractors of both President Donald Trump and challenger, though he still hasn't admitted it, Ron DeSantis. He writes, DeSantis had no place whatsoever inserting himself into a state governor primary at this point. It was beyond silly. Clearly, he was trying to portray himself as someone with influence and as a kingmaker. Fail. And again, I've been harping on this for some time now. This further illustrates his poor judgment in personnel, something often attributed to President Trump. Whoever on his team had recommended he get involved this way should be fired. He has enough to worry about with his polling slipping from averages of 30% just two months ago to the mid-teens today. And there's another note about this, by the way. You know, people talk often about how Trump surrounds himself with all these bad people. That's supposed to be one of the major knocks on Trump. And there's another way to understand that first off, which is that Trump puts people in place for a certain reason, no matter whether they are establishment hacks or the best people he could possibly have in the position long term. He puts them in there for a reason. Maybe he's monitoring them. Maybe he needs something particular out of them. But once he is done with that person and that person has been exposed, he gets rid of them. Now, you may not buy that explanation. You may not believe that Donald Trump knows what he's doing and does things on purpose. And I'm not saying he never makes mistakes. I'm just saying to chalk up these personnel decisions as one of the worst things about Donald Trump, as if other people are always right about them, is crazy. Also, the people who are the bad people that Donald Trump surrounds himself with are all establishment Republicans and people from the military industrial complex, people who worked with the Bushes, people who worked with the McCain's and the Romney's of the world. They're not ultra MAGA people who didn't get the job done. They're the establishment people who the establishment wanted Trump to hire. Those are the bad people that they complain about. That's the first problem. The second problem is that Ron DeSantis was going to lose his race for governor in 2018 to a gay meth head until Trump stepped in. Trump surrounded himself with DeSantis. Now look at what it seems like DeSantis is doing. DeSantis would be another example of Trump surrounding himself with bad people from the establishment. So people using the argument that Trump surrounds himself with bad people have to apply that argument right now to Ron DeSantis based on what is actually happening. So that argument is senseless. But let's go back to Schweikert. He notes that Trump supporters should not be overly enthused by Daniel Cameron because Daniel Cameron in Kentucky is considered a Mitch McConnell guy. We'll see how that plays out in the future. 
but he moves to the Jacksonville mayoral race. Then there was the Jacksonville, Florida mayor race, won by Donna Deegan, Democrat over Daniel Davis. Jacksonville was the largest city in the country with a Republican mayor prior to last night. DeSantis critics are ripping the governor for not staying home and paying attention to this key race. And what he's referring to here is the fact that DeSantis has been traveling all over the world and all over the country over the last few weeks. And while he endorsed this mayoral candidate, he didn't actually help campaign for him at all. Schweikert writes, a few years ago, I was in Jacksonville with a friend, a former judge there, and there was a mayor election going on. A white Republican was running unopposed. I thought, this is odd. What's going on? I asked my friend. He answered, the Republicans and the Democrats agreed that if the Democrats would not oppose the mayor this time, the Republicans would not run a candidate in the police chief slash sheriff race. In other words, Deals were cut long before the election to ensure that each party got a major player. I don't know if that's the case this time around, but can say for certain it has happened in the past. Yes, the GOP ran Davis this time. Prior deals? Possibly. Things don't always appear as they seem at the local level, where a handful of votes can make a difference or where animosities are toxic. I certainly don't know if DeSantis' presence or campaigning there would have made a difference. So wheeling and dealing prior to elections, Republicans get one position, Democrats get the other position. They agree to that. They make a deal. And then somehow the election results turn out just the right way. Sometimes they even have to skip running a candidate altogether just so people will understand. Yes, it really was that party that won. This is how deeply rigged our political system in this country is particularly when you're talking about cities in this country. The biggest city in the country who had a Republican mayor just lost that Republican mayor. Now, R&D in these scenarios don't make any difference. Having a uniparty right candidate representing you with a little R next to their name is no better than having a uniparty left candidate representing you with a little D next to their name If they're all going to pursue the same things and the agenda overall gets pushed forward and people's lives are affected in the exact same ways, people spend their time getting mad at the little R or the little D rather than getting mad at the fact that elections are stolen by the uniparty so that the same agenda can be pushed forward no matter which party is in power. This is from NBC News describing the mayoral race in Jacksonville. Florida Democrats flipped the Jacksonville mayor's office in a major upset. Democrat Donna Deegan won the Jacksonville mayor's race Tuesday night, a shocking upset that hands Florida Democrats a major shot of energy less than six months after they were trounced in the 2022 midterms and considered left for dead by the national party. Isn't that amazing? Just seven months later, after Florida had this massive win, and we know Florida's elections are perfect, Jacksonville flips from Republican to Democrat. Deegan came into election day as the decided underdog against Republican Daniel Davis, who is head of the city's Chamber of Commerce and had a significant fundraising advantage. He was endorsed by Governor Ron DeSantis, but that support was lukewarm. 
DeSantis did not do events with Davis or put his political muscle behind his candidacy. I wonder if DeSantis knew that the Democrats were going to take it no matter what. Isn't Florida where woke goes to die? Why is Ron just allowing Democrats to win a position without trying as hard as he can to maintain that position for the Republican Party? With all of the city's 186 precincts reporting, Deegan had a 52% to 48% advantage over Davis, who was vying to replace current Republican mayor Lenny Curry, who was term limited. Everyone said it could not be done in Jacksonville, Florida, Deegan said, according to video of her victory speech. We did it because we brought the people inside. The city of Jacksonville's official Twitter account sent a tweet congratulating Deegan on Tuesday night, writing, We look forward to your leadership and vision as you help guide our city into the future. Isn't that great? Democrats and Republicans in Jacksonville getting along just fine. And that's what we really want, isn't it? Everybody, unity, bipartisanship. That's how we know things are working perfectly. That's how we know the country is healing. Child brains believe these things. In his concession speech, Davis called on everyone to come together now and move our city forward, according to the site Florida Politics. Deegan is a former TV anchor in the city with significant name recognition. After she left TV, she went on to found a nonprofit group that focuses on breast cancer research. She will be the city's first female mayor. Oh, it's like a bizarro world, Carrie Lake. The win in Jacksonville, which was the most populous city in the country with a Republican mayor, is a huge morale boost for Florida Democrats who have faced a series of stinging losses in recent years. Most recently, they were hammered up and down the ballot in a midterm election cycle in 2022 when DeSantis won re-election by nearly 20 percentage points. He also captured Duval County, which is composed mostly of the city of Jacksonville by 12 percentage points. Just when people thought they had Jacksonville figured out, the voters have confounded expectations, said Chris Hand, a government law attorney who served as chief of staff to former Democratic Jacksonville Mayor Alvin Brown. Donna Deegan's win is historic, not just because of who she is, but also because of how she won. By running a positive campaign and building a coalition of Democrats, no party affiliation voters, and even some Republicans. The article goes into more of the backstory and all that down at the end. Still, the win is both a shot of momentum and a big time win to kick off the tenure of new state Democratic chair Nikki Freed, who was elected to the post in February and was handed the uphill task of rebuilding the party in what had long been known as the country's largest swing state. For too long, Jacksonville has been led by Republicans who are hell-bent on taking away our rights, and it's past time that the city is led by leaders with new, fresh ideas who have a plan for Jacksonville, Freed said. And Nikki Freed is like the leading Democrat operative in Florida. If Ron leaves, I would be surprised if Nikki Freed was not the next governor there. Apparently, we are being shown that Florida is still a purple state, even though DeSantis won that exact region by 12 points just seven months ago. And now Deegan has won by four points. So that's a 16 point swing in seven months in the place where woke goes to die. 
Ron DeSantis, we are told, is the most popular Republican in the country. And he would absolutely be the next president if not for Donald Trump and his supporters who are just willing to burn the Republican Party to the ground and reelect Joe Biden because they are just too immature to understand what's good for them. That's why they need it forced down their damn throats. They don't understand that Donald Trump is way too toxic to the entire nation, even though Donald Trump won in 2020. And even though, minus the presence of election fraud last fall, Republicans dominated in the midterms. But we just pull the old trick of ignoring election fraud completely, figuring out how to attack Donald Trump and describe a situation in whatever way makes Donald Trump sound the worst. And we say that Republicans have developed a habit of losing. The only way to fix that losing problem is to bring the establishment back in and the establishment guy, the guy they want, whether or not he's running and whether or not it's his fault, the guy they say they want is Ron DeSantis. That's the guy who's going to win. But somehow in the glorious state of Florida, where everything is perfect in Republican terms, they are really getting the job done. They are really thwarting the regime in Florida. They still lose a mayoral race in Jacksonville by four points, a 16 point swing in six months while under the perfect leadership of Ron DeSantis. So how in the world does that happen? In fact, how do Democrats win elections anywhere in the country right now? We know what the country thinks. We see the polling. We listen to people as they wake up and begin to learn that all of the things the conspiracy theorists were saying is true. Everybody sees what Joe Biden is. There are ignorant people out there and they're going to remain ignorant. We cannot focus our attention on them. And of course, there will always be liars who are benefiting from the system as it exists. But by and large, people understand what's going on. They understand who and what Joe Biden really is. And they're absolutely sick of Democrats. So which explanation will Ron DeSantis supporters use to ignore this? They blame Donald Trump for election losses in elections that Donald Trump wasn't running in elections. We know the Republican establishment put up candidates in primaries to weaken MAGA candidates in elections. We know that the Republican establishment actively chose not to back MAGA candidates so that they would lose around the country. Mitch McConnell didn't help. The National Party didn't help. And everyone once again pretended that all of the elections were just fine. Ron DeSantis's supporters on Twitter, the people pushing him to run, the people running this up, have absolutely no shame in talking about how bad a candidate Carrie Lake is because she lost because she's MAGA, which is why she lost because Trump endorsed her and she talked too much about election fraud and other MAGA issues. That's why she lost, except she didn't lose. And these Republicans who focus, they say all the time on winning, saw wins happen and then didn't bother trying to close on them and now call those wins losses so that they can reassume power. Donald Trump didn't lose 
in 2020, that election was stolen. It's pretty obvious to just about everybody at this point that it was stolen. It was stolen systematically. It was not legally stolen. It was just stolen. And the Republican establishment did not fight alongside Donald Trump to prove that to the country. They just let the media cover it all up and they have assisted in that cover up now for two and a half years. They claim that you should trust them anyway because they are the ones who can win. The Donald Trump thing is just too toxic to independents and Democrats and suburban women, even though that is totally false. Donald Trump continues gaining with black voters, Hispanic voters, other minority voters, all of whom are supposed to be Democrats from all the stories we're told. He's doing better with women than he is with men right now. And he's blowing out Ron DeSantis right now. So the women cannot possibly be hating Trump as we are told they do. He's doing just fine with independents and he's going to do just fine with Democrats, particularly after they realize through the candidacy of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. that climate change is a hoax. The vaccines don't work and elections are stolen. And people say, well, Donald Trump, he's just too close to the vaccine. He's too connected to the vaccine. Really? Really? Democrats are going to blame the vaccine on Donald Trump? Is that what we are supposed to believe? Anti-vax and Donald Trump were made synonymous by Democrats. Everyone who didn't want to take the COVID vax was suspected of being a Trump supporter. You can't separate anti-vax and Donald Trump. It's not possible, which is why it continues to fail every time anyone tries it. It's dumb. It doesn't matter if Donald Trump still says that Operation Warp Speed was a good idea. I've talked about this issue at long length. There is an episode of my podcast that you can easily find on Substack or on Rumble or wherever you listen to it from a few months ago called The Trump Vaccine. If you don't understand the issue, listen to that episode, and I think you will after that. Regardless, Democrats who supported the vaccine, encouraged other people to get the vaccine, supported vaccine mandates and vaccine segregation are not going to be able to turn around and blame the vaccine on Donald Trump. It's just not possible. They know that it was them encouraging people to take the vaccine and they know it was them who actually caused other people to take the vaccine. Donald Trump did not cause anyone to take the vaccine. Not only was it not out when he was president, except for those last few weeks when the very first people began taking it. He also obviously never mandated it, nor did he support mandates. What he's saying is that without the release of that vaccine, we would have been kept in lockdown for years. That was the plan. And people can get as mad as they want about the fact that he won't go out and disavow all of that. But the moment he does that, the vaccine gets tied to him, and then all of these false and malicious arguments from other people go directly at Donald Trump instead of where the responsibility actually lies on each and every person to make their own individual choices. If you heard Donald Trump say, maybe you should get the vaccine and you went out and got it, you're not doing thinking right. I'm sorry. Okay. And by the way, 
I know that people are like, you're a little insensitive about the vaccine thing. A lot of people had a lot of different reasons. I understand that. And I appreciate your reasons. I'm just also here to be honest and say, sorry, that was a bad decision. It doesn't matter what your justification was. No one made a good decision when they got that vaccine because it was totally unnecessary and totally unproven. And it turns out it's totally unsafe. And many of us knew that at the time. And so did the people who chose to take it. You can blame that decision on someone else, but it's on you. It is on the individual. Each and every person who chose to take it chose on their own terms. Were they encouraged? Were they pushed? Were they coerced? Yeah, maybe. And I feel bad about all of those situations. And you do have my sympathy. I hope you are looking after your health, taking care of your immune system. And I hope you live a very long and happy life. Okay. This is not about you. This is about the qualitative decision you made. And it was a bad one. It is a bad idea to introduce risk unnecessarily when there is no positive benefit to be gained and no risk you are actually going to avoid. And that was the situation. But we are told Donald Trump will not be able to appeal to these voters. We are also told that Ron DeSantis's fantastic leadership has created so many new Republicans in Florida. We're told the number is something like 400,000. So Florida is more Republican than it has ever been. And they still lose a mayoral race in Jacksonville in an area DeSantis won by 12 points just seven months ago. That's not possible. It's not possible without election rigging or backroom deals. That's it. And the fact that Ron DeSantis didn't bother campaigning in Jacksonville for this mayoral candidate should tell you that he already knew what the result would be and didn't want to tie himself too closely to the eventual loser. This way, he's able to claim that he supported the party by endorsing the candidate. And people will also argue that it's not Ron DeSantis's fault he lost because Ron DeSantis just wasn't able to campaign for him. He was busy going to Japan and Israel and Iowa where he laughs like a fool. There is no acceptable answer to how this happened within the Ron DeSantis folklore and mythology. At least one of their anti-Trump arguments in regard to winning elections is wrong. And the truth is that they're all wrong. Ron DeSantis isn't as popular as they say. Our elections are not safe and secure, including the elections in Florida. Or a backroom deal was made, and that's the sort of thing that happens regularly in Ron DeSantis's state where woke goes to die. Now, again, maybe DeSantis is the good guy and is allowing all of this to happen around him so that the system is fully exposed, so that the rhinos in the party, in the donor class and in the media are all exposed. All of that is totally possible. And maybe Ron is just taking one for the team for seven or eight months or however long this goes on in order to help complete and achieve much higher mission goals. If that is true, wonderful, good for Ron. I will be more than happy to acknowledge that and support him in the future and thank him for this personal reputational sacrifice he has made. All right. I have no problem expressing that position because that is still a question mark. It's becoming less of a question mark each day, but you got to at least keep your mind open. Regardless, all of the arguments in favor of his candidacy 
that include the pragmatic argument of his having the ability to win where Donald Trump does not, they are just false. Those arguments have never been good. I have been saying this repeatedly for months now on Twitter as this ridiculous failure of an op continues to plot along, but it is true. And both elections last night are proof of that. So let's talk about the debt ceiling debate that is ongoing. Kevin McCarthy and leadership went to meet with Joe Biden today and Biden came out and took a few questions from reporters. He said that they are willing to negotiate now on things like work requirements for welfare, but he doesn't want to cut any of the spending. He doesn't want to return spending to the levels from December 2022 when they went and passed in the lame duck session that omnibus bill that guarantees all of this future spending. And right there, you have proof of something I said a couple of weeks ago. Joe Biden has no leverage. Biden's position was that he would only accept a clean debt ceiling raise. And now he is negotiating away from that position. That is proof that he does not have leverage. It is also proof that he's desperate to get something done, which means that he continues not to have any leverage because the work requirement thing does not advance the negotiations at all. That is a non-starter for Republicans. House Republicans passed a bill to raise the debt ceiling. That is the only bill that has been advanced. The House has done its work. They are not going to take the blame for any of this when Joe Biden fails to sign this bill. And they have now moved into the phase where they are calling it the Biden default. And that is what it will be. They also have 45 Republican senators who have signed on to the bill that House Republicans passed, and they are fully backing that bill. They are standing behind Kevin McCarthy and the position of the House. Joe Biden has two choices, either default or accept the Republican position. They have absolutely no reason to back off of their position, especially now that it is proven that Joe Biden doesn't have any leverage. Now, at the end of the episode yesterday, where I was discussing what I thought would happen in the future in regard to the Durham report and how that would be used, I was discussing RICO, conspiracy, racketeering charges, and I mentioned Trump's civil RICO case. This morning on War Room, Steve Bannon had Rudy Giuliani on, and they discussed that very subject. Real quickly before I go, also in Durham, could you additionally have used RICO on the Durham situation? Could you have brought, to the best of your knowledge, could you have brought charges uh, to, against McCabe, Comey, the rest of these, Brennan, all of them, in the Durham situation, yeah, when, you, sir. When, you, when you look when you look at the briefing uh, uh, that Brennan does in late July, early August 2016 at the White House to the president, the vice president, the attorney general, Susan Rice, the head of FBI, that could be a scene out of The Godfather. They're all reporting to the boss, the Don, how Hillary has got a scheme to frame Trump. I just translated all that into English. That's what it was, right? They come to him and they say, Hillary is going to work on a scheme to put this charge against Trump. They all know it's untrue in order to take the focus off her smashing up the hard drive, destroying the emails, 
committing perjury. That's a straight out criminal uh, admission that she's going to commit serious crimes. And the president sits there and by not doing anything, it's like, you know, the godfather nodding his head. Okay, and then she goes ahead for months and does it, and he never does it. He just watches. So I think you want to deal with it. You might even do it as a civil RICO case in which you can take all their money. Wow. But wow. to let I tell Obama you what, we, ought be looking at that. We, we, we ought to be looking at that right now. Of Another historical could, event that happened. Could not have happened without Obama. Could not have happened. And now we know. Another, and now we know he knew about it. Another historical event in August of 2016. Stephen K. Bannon, yours truly, steps in and takes over the Trump campaign. Hey, just saying. There's no coincidences, baby. No coincidences. And how about that? He said, maybe I would even do it as a civil RICO and take all their money. I mean, hey, I'm not saying. I'm just saying. It sounds like there's a bigger plan. And it sounds like they're telling us continually what that bigger plan is as we can see it emerge in reality. You'll remember that Rudy Giuliani is the man who took down the mob in New York City. He understands RICO probably better than any attorney in the country. He's done it successfully against the mob. It's also worth noting while you're thinking about that, that Rudy Giuliani was the one tasked to go investigate the Bidens in Ukraine. That's what the whole Ukraine impeachment hoax was about. Aren't you glad that Rudy Giuliani was doing that investigation? Rudy Giuliani is the one who had the Hunter Biden laptop. Is there some sort of connection there? Hey, maybe. It's also no coincidence that Rudy Giuliani was the one leading the post-election investigation and hearings after the 2020 election. Rudy Giuliani presented the evidence of election fraud to the entire nation throughout those hearings. And the media didn't cover them. The media said that they were all a clown show, that nothing in there proved anything. That wasn't actual evidence. All those thousands of affidavits he had made no difference. The expert testimony made no difference. That was the media narrative about what Rudy was doing. And the strange thing is that people on our side have, for some reason, accepted the media narrative about all of that because they think that the net effects of all that were nothing. Nothing was done about the elections, which means nothing will be done about the elections. Therefore, Rudy failed at his job. Well, that's not true. Rudy presented the evidence to the nation in public, in hearings, in front of legislatures. How the media responds is irrelevant and how people in the country respond to the media is irrelevant. None of that changes the underlying status of those claims of that evidence or of the presence of election fraud. People trash Rudy. They trash his social life, his personal life. They try to find different ways to make fun of him. But that's what they do to all of their enemies and everyone who threatens them. Think about the things they say about Donald Trump. Think about the things they say about Carrie Lake. Think about the things they say about all of these world leaders around the world who are trying to protect the sovereignty of their own nations. 
All of them are called autocrats and dictators and thugs and are called illegitimate by the same global state propaganda media that tells us Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes. All you have to consider is that Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani might know more about what's going on behind the scenes than the mainstream media does and that we do. We can do our best with open source intelligence and information in figuring out what is actually going on and we can do our best to communicate it. But none of that indicates that we have knowledge of what's happening behind the scenes. Rudy Giuliani, Trump's attorney tasked with handling Ukraine, the Hunter Biden laptop and the post-election hearings is in a better position to know what's going on behind the scenes. And Steve Bannon, Trump's campaign manager from 2016, who is still intimately linked to the Trump movement and the Trump campaign and just interviewed Trump in Mar-a-Lago two weeks ago, is in a better position than we are to know what's going on behind the scenes. So if you leave open the possibility that Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani might know what's going on behind the scenes, then it's totally possible that they are hinting to us about what's going on behind the scenes. This isn't even complicated stuff. It's only about where you choose to place your priorities when it comes to receiving and analyzing information. That's it. I trust Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani more than all of the mainstream media combined. And I believe that that is an entirely defensible position. Now, finally, I want to talk about legitimately shocking footage. Some of it we've seen before. We knew about the existence of this footage. But today, the Gateway Pundit put out a story, Alicia Poe, wrote the story, exclusive J6 footage, defense attorney exposes the exact moment the government waged attack. I'll tell you exactly where shit went crazy, is the quote, and there is pretty shocking video to back that up. And so to see the video, I would suggest that you go to thegatewaypundit.com. I've also, of course, posted this in the info stream on telegram t.me slash I'm your moderator. Inside this article, these videos, these are the sorts of videos that you can send to those people in your life who still believe that January 6th was a very violent insurrection waged by Donald Trump's supporters. This shows quite clearly the police shooting at peaceful protesters, people who were doing absolutely nothing. When the police started shooting people in the face and throwing flash grenades at the unarmed crowd, everything changed on January 6th. The government opened fire, escalating the protest. Only one side was armed using deadly force, the police. The crowd became livid as they watched cops shooting deadly rubber bullets, tear gas and flashbangs or sting balls at civilians, often aimed at their heads. Footage obtained by the Gateway Pundit showcases the unjustified use of deadly force employed by law enforcement against demonstrators protesting the stolen election. Anyone who wants to get to the bottom of January 6th must focus on the key moment, the precise time the typical protest escalated into, quote, the most investigated demonstration in FBI history, defense attorney Stephen Metcalf told the Gateway Pundit. This is crucial. 
because this is where what everybody is saying about January 6th being a setup and a Fed surrection actually matters. But nobody is pinpointing the precise time, he said. Everyone is saying there's FBI agents in the crowd. There's confidential human sources in the crowd. There's blah, blah, blah. I'll tell you exactly where shit went crazy. It went crazy at that precise time when the protesters all standing in the West Side Terrace and then shots start going off and people are getting hit in the face. There were a couple of agitators in the crowd. Don't get me wrong. But what took it to a whole different level is people being shot in the face with rubber bullets. That's where people who were angry got even angrier and rightfully so. Metcalf, who represents several J6 defendants, including Dominic Pizzola, the only proud boy acquitted of seditious conspiracy charges, has scoured through the hours of footage lawmakers refuse to show the public. After protesters knocked over a bike rack blockading the building, the moment the government characterizes as the first breach, police were positioned in a riot line. Riot line protocol instructs officers to remove agitators from the crowd. Instead of removing agitators, police on the riot line were strategically positioned on the terrace above to shoot protesters, Metcalf explained. The first line of police is called the skirmish line. The second line is called a linebacker line. What they are supposed to do is when there are agitators in the crowd specifically, get them out of there, he said. And they set themselves up from an elevated position. So they had people on the terrace above. They started off with one shooter and then they got a second shooter. A law enforcement official identified by government witnesses during discovery as Inspector Lloyd wearing a white shirt behind the lines gave the initial orders to shoot a moderately calm crowd, Metcalf continued. Behind the linebacker line is Inspector Lloyd. This is what Dominic was talking to the Gateway Pundit about, and that's Dominic Pizzola. He said, there was a guy who signaled. There were a couple of people pushing the line, but ultimately they weren't doing anything crazy, and they ultimately stopped their behavior, and everything was somewhat chill at one point. Lloyd repositions himself. He looks up. He does a circular motion and then points in the direction of the crowd, in a particular direction of the crowd. I can show the hand signals that were done. And this is all from Metcalf's explanation. They're all standing there at the West Side Terrace and then shots start going off into people's faces. And then there are five or six people that get shot. We got video from above and then we got audio above. There was a shooter and a guy recording. From the guy recording next to him, you hear someone telling the shooters who to hit. Hit the guy in the red shirt. Hit the guy in the green hat. Hit the guy in the brown jacket. We got them saying who to hit, and the people they were hitting were just standing there. Protesters, including J6 defendant Ryan Samsel, are seen in the footage attempting to render aid to Joshua Black as blood drips from his face into a puddle on the ground. And now earmuffs, if you got kids in the car, don't shoot him in the fucking face. A man is heard screaming at the top of his lungs. Is it a rubber bullet? Another protester asks Black. I don't know. Black responds, pouring water over the wound as the bullet protrudes through the left side of his mouth. Motherfucker, we got to get him out of here, man. Another protester exclaims. Stunned and outraged. The crowd angrily confronts the officers in the police line, standing idle as Black bled out. You fucking shot him in the face. You're on our side. 
You're on our side. A man screams in an officer's face. We are Americans. You fucking take him and help him. Fucking traitor, traitor. Another man yells at the cops as flash grenades erupt. As Pizzola told the Gateway Pundit, he is heard on footage warning the cops, you are going to kill somebody if you don't stop this shit. Then the Gateway Pundit article shows some stills with the subtitles over them. The police talking about how they need more munitions. They need blast munitions. They ask, do we have any blast munitions that we can deploy? One says, let's go fucking shoot them. One says, we've hit them with a lot of pain compliance. Someone remarks, but you're hitting innocent people. And one of the officers says, and not only that, we're taking out one, we're multiplying them by hitting them. So they know that they are making the crowd angrier as they are attacking the crowd. The Capitol Police are shooting people in the face with rubber bullets, and they are shooting different forms of non-lethal grenades into the crowd. While the injury that killed Black is caught on camera, scores more protesters almost died during the government's reign of terror on January 6th. On Tuesday, Black was sentenced to nearly two years in prison for entering the Capitol building with a knife on his hip and a gaping wound on his face. Prosecutors had recommended a five-year prison sentence. Aerial footage played in slow motion reveals exactly what the crowd was doing when police decided to shoot hundreds of civilians with tear gas, grenades, and bullets. And again, I really suggest that people go to this article and watch these videos. Police showed up to the Mega Maga March on January 6th, intent on a killing spree with rubber bullets. The weapons they use are marked with a warning label that states could cause death. Now back to Metcalf, the attorney. Now Black is the one who the bullet penetrated. Other people were getting hit in the head. I saw other guys getting hit in the ear. That is not proper protocol. You cannot do headshots with a rubber bullet like that from that vicinity. The firearm officers used to shoot the rubber bullets had a warning label. We read the warning label to the jury, which stated in sum and substance, do not shoot in the head or face because it can cause serious physical injury and or death. I asked witness after witness, if these people got shot in the temple, would they die? If they got shot in the eye, would they lose an eye? Every answer was yes. It didn't matter whose witness it was. My witness, the government's witness. It didn't matter. The answer is yes. So now you have deadly force against non-deadly force. And then everything was pumped up from there. That's how we got to people going in the building. Confidential human sources deployed from the MPD. That's the Metro Police Department, the FBI, the CIA, HSI and government plants incited violence during the protest and coordinated to entrap patriots. But the actual terror attack waged by police to agitate and incense the American people on January 6th is the setup for the Fed surrection. That's what people don't understand, Metcalf said. The shots set everyone off. Then Dominic Pizzola gets the shield. People were getting shot right by him. Dominic is standing next to Joshua Black in the video. The guy standing next to Dominic is getting shot. This shit was going on. Everybody is almost there, but they don't have it right. If you want to talk about a setup, you have to talk about how they figured out a way to agitate the crowd. That's what it comes down to. He continued, focus on the people who were there and what they were doing at that time. 
People could have controlled that situation based on their training and experience and any reasonable experience from any of these guys. They could have handled this way differently and they didn't. They shot people in the face. Then Dom gets a shield. Then Dom goes back and he backs up. And then there is where the flashbangs were thrown at the crowd at their heads. During Dominic Pizzola's cross-examination by the government, they tried to downplay the attack by saying it was sting balls rather than a flashbang. Ethan Nordine, the former leader of the Proud Boys Washington State chapter, known as Rufio, who was convicted of seditious conspiracy on May 4th, told the Gateway Pundit on a call from solitary confinement, he was shot in the back nearly a dozen times by police on January 6th. The vest he wore to prevent getting stabbed by Antifa kept him safe. Five people were killed on January 6th, yet no investigation of this component has been launched by GOP members of Congress. Black Lives Matter and Antifa have yet to protest or burn down cities over the unparalleled police brutality against the J6 quote unquote super predators. Mickey Whithoft, the mother of slain Air Force veteran Ashley Babbitt, met with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy in March. McCarthy allegedly told her in the closed door meeting he has never seen the footage that aired across mainstream media of Lieutenant Byrd shooting Babbitt. Previously, McCarthy stated Byrd was just, quote, doing his job. The wrongful death lawsuit, Babbitt's husband Aaron announced he would file against U.S. Capitol Police and Lieutenant Byrd for taking Babbitt's life, has never been filed, and the two-year statute of limitations has passed. Now, that in particular is very odd, particularly if you have seen the slow motion breakdowns of that Ashley Babbitt shooting, and we will leave that discussion for another time. But finishing up, an uncut hour and 21 minute video obtained by the Gateway Pundit showcases the events following the first breach during the J6 protest from when protesters knocked over a bike rack and police opened fire to protesters breaking windows and trespassing into the Capitol building and bird shooting Babbitt. And so naturally that hour and 21 minute long video is included in the article as well. So if this is a subject you care about, this is the sort of article you don't want to miss because the video in here is pretty incredible and clips of this video will absolutely be the sort of thing that could go viral and could really wreck some child brains out there who think that Donald Trump's supporters were the problem on January 6th. This is very clear, irrefutable evidence of police attacking peaceful January 6th protesters. It is indisputably true. It is obvious. The video is shocking. The video is damning. I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic, and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. 
The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!